Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of About IBD. I'm Amber Tresca. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1989 and had J-pouch surgery in 1999. My guest today is Natalie Hayden of Lights, Camera, Crones, An Unobstructed View. Such a clever name for her blog because Natalie is a broadcast journalist. You'll hear more about Natalie's story and her journey with Crohn's disease. And it brought up a question for me that I want to pose to you. Do you think it's preferable to know a little bit about Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis before being diagnosed? Or do you think it's better to know almost nothing at all before receiving a diagnosis? Natalie has a unique view on this, and I can't wait for you to hear it. She'll also talk about what she has going on now, what's going on with the blog, and what she literally has cooking. So here we go with Natalie of Lights, Camera, Crowns. Hey, Amber, it's Natalie. Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good, thanks. Thank you for talking with me. And mm-hmm. I would really like to get in the conversation and hear some more about your your Crohn's disease journey, especially how you were diagnosed and when you were diagnosed. I know a little bit, sure. but I sort of purposefully don't know a lot. So you can tell me about it now. Sure. Great. So um, prior to being diagnosed with Crohn's disease, I was a picture of health. I was an athlete. I played soccer year round for over 15 years. I played basketball. I did hurdles and track. I ran the 400 meter. I was I never even had an ear infection. So um, March of my senior year of college in 2005, I went on a trip to the Bahamas for spring break with my girlfriend. And that is the first time I really had a memory of just excruciating stomach pains to the point where I couldn't even get out of the hotel room. And I didn't know what was going on. I thought I ate something bad or I just had too much fun that day or something. Um, I tried to take some different types of medications, you know, over-the-counter stuff, but nothing was helping me. So that's really like the first time I ever felt like something was wrong with me. I graduated from Marquette University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin in May. And then shortly after graduation is when the symptoms really exasperated. I was getting fevers of up to 104 degrees. Um, I was unable to eat basically anything. Even popsicles gave me pain. Um, I was very fatigued. I could barely go up the 13 stairs in my parents' house. And we were really starting to get concerned. My mom's a nurse, and we didn't know what was going on. I was Googling lots of things and trying to educate myself. And I actually grew up with some kids that had Crohn's disease. So I wasn't completely educated, but I was probably more aware of what that disease entailed um, than a typical person. Um, so I actually thought that that might be the problem. Um, so what happened was, is July 23rd, 2005, my mom came home from work and I was unshowered on the couch. And prior to that, I had been going to my general practitioner and she was ruling out so many things. First, she thought it was my appendix and my gallbladder. I was getting um, ultrasounds and different blood tests and everything was coming back fine. And they weren't able to rule out, you know, no one ever said anything to me about it being a GI disease. Uh, Well, then my mom saw me on the couch. I was very sick and weak. And she said, you know what, we're just going to go to the emergency room. And we went to the emergency room. They did an abdominal CT scan and a rectal exam. And the doctor walked in and said, it appears you have Crohn's disease. You're malnourished. You're dehydrated. You are getting admitted immediately. You're getting a colonoscopy tomorrow. It was like a ton of bricks, and I basically blacked out in that moment because in my entire patient journey, I have absolutely no recollection of that response. Out of everything else, I have a pretty clear memory, but I don't know how I responded. I don't know if I cried. I don't know if I just looked forward. My mom doesn't either. It was like we completely blacked out um, that moment in our lives. Uh, but it was very difficult and very isolating and scary. At the time, I wanted to be a television journalist um, as a news anchor and a reporter, and I was in the middle of my first job search. So it was very stressful, and I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to accomplish my dreams, let alone do anything in life at that point. So it's interesting to me because the emergency department is a place where most people with IBD don't ever want to be, but you were diagnosed there. Yeah, I was, which is unheard of, you know? 
Yeah. I, I mean, you're like the first person I've ever heard of. Yes. They basically, the doctor just walked in and told me that. And he was pretty certain uh, just by looking at a CT scan. He said, you know, we're going to confirm with a colonoscopy. But he said, you know, you have Crohn's disease. We just need to confirm, you know, how severe it is, where it's at, that sort of thing. So I haven't heard of many people that have gotten a diagnosis in the emergency room before. No, not that way, because usually the other thing is, is you'd been undergoing all of those other tests. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that physician had access to those results at that time, but usually it's yeah. accumulation of all of these things. And then they finally put it all together. Yeah. So I actually feel pretty lucky that I really only had a couple months of uncertainty about what was going on. Of course, nobody wants to be told they have a diagnosis of a chronic illness, but it's also a relief when you've been sick for so long and you finally have an answer and can start trying to, to take on the battle. So let me ask you this. A lot of people, when they're diagnosed with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, Many times they haven't ever heard of these diseases before. Mm -hmm. You had because yeah. you had experience with people. So, and then you knew a little bit about it because you had some suspicions. Mm -hmm. How do you think that knowledge that you came in with and already suspecting that you might have Crohn's disease colored your reaction to getting the diagnosis? I actually think because I was educated on what IBD was, that it actually scared me more because the people that I knew that had it uh, grew up with it and missed, you know, several months of high school. They were very sick. They had severe cases. So through my lens, I knew how bad it could be and what it did to their quality of life. And ironically, my cousin's wife was diagnosed with Crohn's disease a matter of days before me. So prior to my diagnosis, I was sitting on the couch, very sick. And my mom got a call and she said, oh my gosh, Elisa was just diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And I'll never forget. I looked at her in the kitchen. I go, that's what I have. And what do you know? We, we call each other Crohn's sisters. <laughs> uh, we're not blood relatives, but it was kind of crazy that two people in our family uh, were diagnosed with it at the same week. So that was kind of crazy to, to deal with. And she was friends with the same people I was as well. Right. So it's almost, it's, it's a kind of a rare case of uh, knowing a little bit about it yes. was almost making it worse for you. Yes, it was. Yeah. Because the people that you knew did have, mm -hmm. you know, severe Crohn's disease. And they were, they had it through their family. So, you know, both brothers would have it or their mom would have it. So I saw it kind of go through the family um, and that was concerning to me as well, because I aspired to one day become a mom myself. Right. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, we have to get to that topic. Mm -hmm. um, so, but do you have any family history? I do not. So uh, unless it's very, very distant, um, like my, my grandparents' parents might have had some stomach problems, but back then, you know, in the early 1900s and things, they didn't really document it or say it was Crohn's disease or UC. So it's hard to say, but anybody that's living, I'm the only one that has it. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got this diagnosis and you're wondering how it's going to impact what mm -hmm. you wanted to do in your career. Mm -hmm. But I know that you did achieve a lot of your goals. So tell me about how you managed to do that. How did you get treatment right away and how mm -hmm. did that all go? And then did that feed into your being able to uh, go into broadcast journalism? Sure. When I uh, got out of the hospital, I was in there for about a week. I left the hospital on 22 pills a day on 60 milligrams of prednisone. And it was like a ton of bricks were falling down on me. I felt so out of sorts, so weak. My arms looked like I was a drug addict from all of the sticks from the needles. I couldn't even, it was summer, it was August at this point, and I couldn't even wear sleeveless. I was emaciated still, but then of course the effect of the prednisone caused my looks to change and I was very self-conscious. I barely would let anybody take a picture of me. And here's a girl who wanted to be on TV prior to that. So um, you know, I got the moon face, the acne, I had incredible insomnia. I am a very high energy person. So the last thing I need is prednisone. Um, and I just remember sitting up in my bed at three in the morning, night after night, chewing bubble gum and staring at myself blowing bubbles because um, with the appetite increase, 
in order to not gain weight, I was, I was chewing gum all the time so that I had something in my mouth. And then the doctor said, well, make sure it doesn't have sorbitol because that's not good for your stomach. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, like one thing after another, I can't win. Um, so I just thought to myself, you know, I still want to be in TV. This isn't going to derail my plan. So that was, you know, the summertime. And I ended up landing my first television job in October. So I was newly diagnosed. I drove eight hours to get to my first job from my parents' home. And I was still on the 22 pills a day, 60 milligrams, um, weaning down slowly. It felt like forever. And because of everything I had gone through, I actually ended up landing a job that was behind the scenes, not on camera, which in the moment, I didn't really think anything of it. But now it's kind of disconcerting thinking, you know, was it because of the way I looked that I was a producer um, and not put on camera like I had hoped to be? Um, because I later ended up being put on camera when I was done with the flare up and um, I ended up being a nightside reporter there. So I did follow my TV dream, but it just had a different path than I had originally expected it to have. I think that's true of a lot of people with IBD. It's the thing that throws a monkey wrench in your plans, but most of us are very, you know, like you said, high energy type A mm -hmm. and uh, we, we, you know, we find a way around it somehow. Yeah. So you did. Now, how long were you uh, working at that? You were at this. You were at a station at that point. Yes, I was on an ABC affiliate in the Rochester, Minnesota, Austin market. It's a split market that also covers Iowa as well. Um, I was there for 17 months, and then I actually got picked up by a station in Wisconsin, another ABC affiliate. They just emailed me and said, "Do you want to be the anchor of Wink Up Wisconsin?" Um, and I couldn't believe it. I was 23 years old at the time and just went out on a whim on an interview on a Saturday, landed the job on a Monday and packed up my bags and moved to Wisconsin, uh, Wausau, Wisconsin, which is about mm, two hours from Madison and about an hour and a half from Green Bay. It's in North Central Wisconsin. Um, ended up anchoring the morning news there for about three and a half, almost four years. And during that time, I had a few flare-ups and hospitalizations. Uh, which was difficult because I would miss two weeks at a time on the air. I was a high school soccer coach, so my girls depended on me, and I would miss their fundraisers and their games and show up from the hospital to practice, but they all rallied around me, and they were just so incredible um, and very supportive, but it was something where I kept my battle secret. I did not want the public to know I had Crohn's disease because I didn't want to be labeled Natalie the sick news anchor. I was very, very shy about telling anybody about it. So when that hospitalization happened and I was a high school soccer coach, I wasn't too keen on my girls knowing too many details um, because I didn't want the public to know, which in hindsight, I wish I would have shared my story because it would have been an incredible platform. Um, if I was still in the news business today, I would definitely be a big advocate and role model to those who battle it. But back then, I was still really struggling with the fact that I had this chronic disease. So did your bosses know or did anyone at the station know? Yes. All my coworkers at all my television stations have always known because as you know how it is, it's a day-to-day -day situation. And there was often times where, you know, I'm the morning girl and I'm supposed to be happy and smiley, but I can't even sit up straight at the news desk. So anytime I wasn't on camera, I would slouch down. I would, you know, tell everybody I'm struggling today. I was very open uh, with people close to me so that they would be able to help me. And you found that they were supportive of you. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Everyone from the meteorologist to the news directors, they would rally around me whenever I needed any help. And they were so patient and very compassionate. And it really did my heart good. You know, when I was in the hospital, people would visit me. I actually had one flare up. I was producing the morning news that I was about to anchor. I was alone in the newsroom, vomiting in the trash cans at about one in the morning. And my co-anchor showed up. And I was throwing up in her car and she hadn't taken me to the hospital uh, because my parents were close to four hours away. So they drove through the middle of the night. So there's moments like that that really stick out in my mind. You don't forget those types of situations. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times having IBD, we're almost conditioned that we're supposed to keep it to ourselves yeah. because of a fear of how coworkers and friends are going to react. Mm -hmm. But in your case, and I think in a lot of cases, if you give people the opportunity, they really will support you and maybe even in some cases surprise you. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You know, I think nowadays, and this was back in 2007, 2008, I think now there's so many 
people that share their journey publicly. You know, there's there's podcasts like this, there's blogs. So people are a little more well-versed. If you tell someone you have Crohn's disease nowadays compared to when I was diagnosed, somebody will always say, oh yeah, I saw the commercial or my friend's friend has that. It seems like everybody knows what it is. Where back in the day, you really had to explain, like nobody had any clue what it was. I, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about that the other day about how some of the medication commercials on TV have mm-hmm. really clued people in. And that's kind of their sort of, if they don't know anybody with IBD, that's sort of their first uh, understanding of what the disease is, is seeing one of the uh, commercials for the medications that are out for the disease. So it's yeah. interesting that you say that. Yeah, totally. It's interesting because just hearing Crohn's disease, you know, when I'm feeding my son in his high chair, or I just, you know, they're all over the place. And while the commercials maybe not all represent our situation in a way we like to have it presented, I think it's huge to just hear people talk about it and just get that conversation started. When we were diagnosed years ago, you wouldn't see anything on TV about IBD. Oh, never. I You saw nothing anywhere. And there was also because I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, it was also challenging because it has that word colitis. Mm -hmm. So people would tell me all the time that they had it or they knew someone who had it, but it wasn't the same type of colitis. So Uh it was, you know, it was very confusing. I think with Crohn's, even though sometimes I think the, because it was the man's name, it was Burl Crohn's Mm -hmm. name. It's not very specific. It doesn't, lend itself to anything. If you don't know what it is, it could be, it could be Mm -hmm. anything. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, but at least people have heard of it. You know, they, they might know it's a, it's a gastro disease because of the commercials that they've seen. Mm -hmm. But other than that, they might not know much. You mentioned your son. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, I do. Who's so cute. Thank you. Um, What was it like so take me through, mm-hmm. um, you knew you wanted to have a family, uh, as you said, and now you have this Crohn's disease diagnosis. Mm-hmm. How do you plan for your family? You know, in the moment I was 21 when I was diagnosed, but I knew at that point, you know, I wanted to get married. I wanted to have kids someday. I wanted it all just like most people do. And, you know, in my mind, I thought, I want all of my kids by age 30, which, of course, (laughs) that did not happen. But, um, you know, it's just funny how you make a timeline for yourself. But um, I I was very nervous about even finding anybody that was going to love me uh, because of my disease. Because while I was in the hospital with that first initial flare-up and diagnosis, my college boyfriend never visited and broke up with me. so that really set the stage for some difficult times for me because in my mind, I thought, well, look, you know, I, we were so happy. And then the minute I get this diagnosis, he's nowhere to be found and then broke up with me the day I left the hospital. So it was like I got knocked down twice. And I didn't find that to be the case in other relationships along the way, but there was another time I had an abscess and I was hospitalized over 4th of July weekend while I was in Wisconsin, but I was back home in Chicago. And my boyfriend at the time said that gas prices were too expensive to drive three and a half hours and that he would rather go fishing. And here I am on the brink of needing surgery. I have an abscess the size of a tennis ball. And this is when I'm put on Team Arrow for the first time. So I thought to myself, well, this guy's going off the door too, you know? So in my opinion, I think that uh, IBD is really a truth serum for all relationships, friendships, and, you know, significant others, because you really get to see people's true colors and they might not even realize it. Uh, so when I met my husband, Bobby, from the start, he was just unbelievably understanding. I had a a bowel obstruction six months into our long distance relationship and he never left my side one time. He's never left my side since any hospitalization I've ever had with him. He sleeps on a cot. He sleeps in my hospital bed. He won't even eat in front of me when I'm NPO. He takes the sponges when I can only have, you know, the ice water on them and rubs that on my gums. He puts my hair up in a ponytail for me. He does everything for me. So when I found him, I just knew I had found someone who was going to be there for the long haul. And even now when I'm in a remission state, he still brings me my pills on a napkin or if it's like midnight and we're in bed and he's like, did you take your medicine? And I forget. And I say, oh no, I'll just take it tomorrow. 
he gets up and brings me a glass of water and hands me the pills one by one. And when I do my Humira injections, he gives me high fives and has me squeeze his hand after. He's just one in a million. I always say everybody needs a Bobby because I really don't know how I'd navigate this illness, let alone parenthood, without him by my side. That's unbelievable. I think that's so heartening. So many people with IBD worry about that and have had experiences like you had where you're dating somebody and then Mm -hmm. um, when it starts to get real. Yeah. They realize they can't handle it, which, you know, it's not for everybody and not everybody's a caretaker and it is hard and you have that guilt in a relationship when you're always the sick one and you're always the one that might need to miss social outings or needs to lay on the couch and doesn't have the energy like a normal person. So, you know, it takes a special person and I recognize that not everybody can be like that, but it's key that people in our community find somebody who has that patience and that love in their heart. Uh, because Bobby didn't even know what Crohn's disease was when I first told him. So he wa- he had to educate himself and learn firsthand, you know, what it was going to be like. So I think that there's those people are out there and don't think that just because you have a disease, you're not capable of finding love. Right. Which is absolutely not true. You know, everyone is worthy of and deserves to have, everyone deserves a Bobby. Yes. Right? <laughs> That's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's such a nice story. And, you know, uh, you, you've you had like, you're listing all your complications and I'm a little bit like, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been lucky these last two years since I had bowel resection surgery, August 1st, uh, 2015, recently just had my anniversary for that, uh, three years. And luckily, knock on wood, I have not been hospitalized since. So it honestly was perfect timing if I had to pick a time to get surgery. I had been engaged for two months and we knew after we got married, we wanted to start a family. So the resection put me into surgical remission. I have never felt better since that surgery. So I was able to get pregnant one month after our wedding and it was a flawless pregnancy and now read 16 months and I'm pregnant with a second now. I, you know, I'm so incredibly excited for you. I can't even, uh, you know, hearing, yeah, hearing more about what, I mean, I know a little bit about your disease journey, but now that you've told me so much more about it, Mm -hmm. that you've been through so much. And Mm -hmm. what do you think about this idea? I hear it from some people sometimes that they wish they'd done the surgery sooner. I definitely wish that I would always use every single hospitalization. I would say my mom and I would both say, we dodged the bullet. We didn't get surgery again. It was like this game in my mind where I didn't want to be a statistic. I didn't want to be the one who got surgery. I knew it was probably eminent in the future, but I was just always so petrified of getting, you know, my body cut into. And it was just very petrifying to me to even think about. So when I had a bowel obstruction, I had three and 16 months. And that's when the GI in the hospital said, something's not right here. Um, we're going to need to do an MRE and decide if you need a resection or not. And of course I did. So he said, you have two options. We can either operate tomorrow morning, or since you've been in the hospital for five days and you're probably weak and not your normal self, we're going to send you home for 10 days, let you walk and build up your strength. And then you're going to come back here and get the surgery. And I chose to go home for the 10 days, but it was honestly the most difficult 10 days of my life. I was just so scared. It was on my mind 24-7. I would stay up at night imagining the surgery, what they were doing to me. But then now that I've had surgery, if God forbid I need another one, which I'm sure I will at some point, I'm really not scared because now I've had the resection and a C-section. I'll be getting another C-section on that same incision uh, in January. So in my mind, I'm, I'm not scared of surgery at all anymore because I've witnessed firsthand how amazing it made me feel and how I bounced back and the recovery wasn't fun, but everything short lived. And if I would have done this earlier, I probably would have suffered a lot less these, this past 13 years. Do you think that you knew that surgery was coming and you were just sort of, oh, uh, this is not the right time, or maybe there's going to be a better time, or I need to do this XYZ first and then I can have surgery? I think it was always in the back of my mind, but I just always kind of refused to allow to think it was even a possibility. But after I kept getting bowel obstruction after bowel obstruction, and then the doctors upped my Humira dosage to weekly, and I was still getting bowel obstruction, uh, I knew something was not right. And I worried that I did have too much scar tissue and inflammation and that there was really only one more option. So I feel like I really did all I could to rule out every other option. And when the time came, you know, 
I figured, well, here we are. You know, I made it 10 years. I made it a decade without surgery. Um, now's the time. Right. It almost feels like like a little accomplishment. You know, yeah, yeah I made it 10 years. <laughs> exactly. So now if I have to have it, okay. All right. Well, you know, I had 10. I had 10 good years. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Something that uh, I try to remind women with IBD about a lot is that having IBD does not necessarily affect your fertility. Mm-hmm. Just, just the just the fact of having the disease. I think people assume automatically that it affects your fertility, which yes, many it does people not do automatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you were able to start your family. Yeah, you wanted to. Yes, I was. I had no issues. Knock on wood. Um, and I know so many people struggle with infertility, even if they are a picture of health and completely healthy. So I felt really, really blessed in that regard because, you know, I hadn't been dealt the best hand of cards when it comes to health, but um, I'd always had a, a regular menstrual cycle um, and I just wasn't too concerned about it. I thought I wouldn't have a problem. And, you know, the key is getting pregnant with IBD when your disease is as calm as possible. And I was feeling so fantastic that I was just thrilled to find out I was pregnant when I did. How much did you involve your doctors in the idea of, okay, now's the time I want to try for a baby? That's a fantastic question. So my bowel resection was in August. In November, at my follow-up appointment, so I was getting married in June, I said, you know, look, once we get married, we want to start a family. And a gastroenterologist is just fantastic. And she was so proactive. In that moment, she put me on a prescription prenatal. She put me on two milligrams of folic acid. So that um, if there's any malabsorption issues, my body was prepped. And then what we did is we scheduled a colonoscopy. It was actually the day of my bachelorette party. Talk about an IBD girl over here. Um, I did a colonoscopy in the morning and flew to Chicago for my bachelorette party at night. Um, (laughs) uh, She told me when she rolled me out the colonoscopy that I had the green light to start a family uh, after my wedding in three weeks. So we were on top of the world and I felt really confident going into the pregnancy that I had no active disease. And we actually did the same thing for this baby. I had a colonoscopy in January. um, And she once again said, you have the green light for pregnancy because she knew that's when we wanted to start trying. And unfortunately, I suffered a miscarriage in March, but I was able to get pregnant. And I got pregnant again uh, with a third baby in May. So, you know, I think a colonoscopy right before you want to try is key because it really gives a good picture of what's going on inside your body. Where's your disease located though? Or where was it located before you had the resection? Yes, it was located in my terminal ileum, uh, in my small intestine. And I've been very lucky to the fact that it hasn't skipped spots in my tract too much. So they took out 18 inches of my small intestine with the resection along with my appendix and then Meckel's diverticulum. Uh, Three different things were removed during that surgery. So they were able to get all of the disease scarring and inflammation at that time. So of course there's no cure and it will most likely come back where the resection is. But um, in that moment, they were able to take a decade of disease out of my body. Right. So they felt good that they, that they've got to all of the active inflammation. Yes. That's pretty amazing. And then how did you feel through the first pregnancy? I felt a lot better than I did through this one. <laughs> um, I There would be moments, you know, with IBD, when you're in a social situation, say you're giving your presentation or you're stressed out about something and you know your disease would be bothering you. You know, your stomach would have that gnawing pain or you'd be running to the bathroom. There'd be, or you drink a little coffee and you feel like, oh, I'd be running to the bathroom right now. There were so many moments in pregnancy where I thought, oh my goodness, I feel like a completely normal person. I didn't have one day where I felt like my disease was acting up. Whereas with this pregnancy, I can definitely feel more symptoms. Uh, This past weekend, I had a girl's trip and two out of three days I was dealing with Crohn's. And, you know, on the train to Chicago, we hadn't even started the weekend, it started. So that's a little disconcerting to me. And, you know, it's a little bit disappointing at times, but I will say for the most part, I have really good days with this pregnancy. It's just been a rougher, it's a girl. And I hear that girls can sometimes cause you a little more trouble before they get here. So probably after they're here too. (laughs) Yeah, I think it depends on the kid. But, um, you know, I did, I did have the same experience that, you know, this is all completely anecdotal that uh, when I was pregnant with my son, I didn't have too much of anything happening. Mm-hmm. But with my daughter, yeah, I was, 
going through it and I was in for tests and all this and we still don't know what was going on during that time. So, yeah, it's hard to I say. I, I think it's just it's a stressful situation, especially when it's your second child and you know what a flare-up entails and you know, I've never had a flare-up while I'm pregnant. So my mind goes to the worst situation, you know, being hospitalized, pregnant, my son at home. Um, it's, and it's always in the back of my mind that that could happen. And when Reed was born, I just said, you know, I pray I don't get hospitalized until he can walk and see me into the room. And now he started walking. So I made it to that milestone. So now I'm hoping I can make it till second birthday, you know, baby steps literally. Um, just because I want him to be able to visit me. And, you know, after I give myself injections, he gives me high fives. He already gets it. When I say mommy has to go to the bathroom, he knows to come to the bathroom with me. I don't even have to pick him up. Um, he's just very intuitive, I feel like. And I think that kids that grow up with IBD parents just have such a different perspective on life and compassion and what it means to be there for others in their family. I agree with you 100%. I've seen it in my own kids. It's totally true. It's not something that we... Yeah, I mean, we don't really want this for anybody, but at the same time, I I think it does help guide their character, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. And how far along are you now? I'm 16 weeks complete. So I just had an OB appointment today and we scheduled my C-section. So we are almost oh, halfway. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So what are your thoughts? I remember... Uh, where my thoughts went when I was pregnant with my second, and I was dealing with some kind of a situation with my first. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that, about suddenly going from one to two? I'm very nervous. I'm obviously excited uh, to have our family grow and have a daughter and a son. But at the same time, I'd say I'm, I'm more scared than anything because I'm a stay-at-home mom who's a freelancer, blogger, and advocate on the side. But I'm, I'm nervous about tackling all of that by myself with Crohn's uh, because Crohn's is really like another family member. It's something that is part of our IBD in general. It's part of our life every single day. So then you throw another person in the mix that you have to care for and you put your own personal needs down that totem pole another step further. So, you know, I'm nervous about navigating the transition from one to two. A lot of my friends say, you know, usually around four to five months, you start getting a hang of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I would say nervous um, and excited at the same time, very anxious. I'm not really sure what to expect, but um, we'll see if we have more kids after this or if this is going to be my breaking point. I'm not quite sure. Now, this is only what I've heard, but going from <laughs> one to two is a challenge. Then going from two to three is really not such a big deal, but then going oh. from three to four is kind of another big one. So, I can't imagine. Yeah. I I remember still the first day that I was left alone with uh, my son and my newborn. There was no family member around. Husband mm-hmm. had to go back to work or whatever he was doing. And I remember I got through the day and I think I, I either called my sister or texted my, six, my sister and I said, there was only one point today where we were all three crying at once. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and I was like... And then I remember yeah. I called my grandmother. My grandmother is a mother of 11. My mother's the oldest oh, of my 11 children. Goodness. Yes. And my grandmother passed away a few years ago. But when my yeah. daughter was an infant, I was talking to her on the phone. And I asked her, how on earth, grandma? And she said, I don't remember how I did it. I really don't. <laughs> And and I, and I think it's just that all out yeah she like blocked it out you know well I mean she just did it she just did it because you have to and you get along the best that you can and mm-hmm. uh, I, you know w- uh, we'll have to talk some more at, you know maybe another time maybe we'll do another pod uh, <laughs> when your little girl comes because I definitely have some tips to give you on how you can hey, get I'll through all of the, uh, the day. Yeah, getting through the day when when you've got a, a walker who mm-hmm. says, "I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, um, I have to poop, whatever it is," <laughs> and you've got the little one, you know, on the boob or whatever's happening, yeah. and you know, what do you do? And I always told my son, my kids are two years nine months apart, which was okay. not what I wanted, but that's how it worked out. <laughs> and so he was old enough to understand a lot by that point. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, "Look, poop always wins." 
So, <laughs> like, you know, whoever's pooping or has poop on them, that's, that's good, the situation like that. I'm going to deal with first. So, and then, or my, Did my you own count situation. For that if, I'm you like, had to, if you had to go? <laughs> yes, definitely. I was I like, it, I'm first, you know? And I think with your first, you tend to worry a lot about the crying and think about, like, as soon as they start to cry, that you have to stop the crying. Mm-hmm. But then it was like then you've got one crying and there's nothing you can do because you're dealing with the other one that's crying. And then you just sort of get used to that and understand that the crying is just part of it and it doesn't hurt them. And you'll just, you'll just get to it when you get to it. And then if you have to go to the bathroom and they're both crying, Uh, oh, well, comfort each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Then mommy's crying too. And that may have been what I was crying. See, but I don't, I couldn't tell you what was I crying over. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I think that's good. It wasn't really that bad, you know. Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely going to be a transition and something to get used to. It's just, it's so hard to ask for help. And um, I think that just knowing you have this chronic illness where you don't know what the day is going to bring and fatigue is something I really, really struggle with probably more than anything now with the disease and just being a mom and staying home with my baby. Um, it really amplifies, like by the end of the day, by the time my husband gets home, I'm on the couch and I can barely function. You know, it's like I'm given everything I can during the day, daytime hours. Um, and then I feel guilt for, you know, oh, I wasn't able to make dinner tonight or I wasn't able to do the laundry because literally going up those stairs was just too much for me. But I think it's just we have to come to grips with we're doing an amazing job and we're doing everything we can for these little people in our lives. And it's okay to have that pile of laundry or to order in pizza. Um, it's, you don't always have to be a superhero for everybody. No. And believe me, the times when I felt like I was really falling down on the job and I would <laughs> text my husband or call him and ask him to pick up dinner on the way home. Those are the days that my kids are like, that day was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so right. It's like, it's <laughs> amazing just how that works. And yeah, it is just, you know, if you, I think if you're worried about how you're doing, you're probably doing fine. Yeah. <laughs> We're our toughest critic. I'm sorry to hear that you're feeling so fatigued. I mean, you <laughs> wouldn't know it. You're always doing a lot in the community with your advocacy work. And what have you got going? Like, what's happening? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm keeping pretty busy. I blog weekly on Life Camera Crohn's, an unobstructed view. And I'm sure after this interview, you realize why it says an unobstructed view. It's because bowel obstructions have always been my main issue. Uh, so unobstructed view means, you know, clear, honest uh, portrayal of what the disease is. But I also like to emphasize the importance of being positive and not letting this disease put negativity throughout your life. So that's really my main focus on my blog. And it just turned two years old and I've never missed a Monday post. Um, And I've had someone recently ask me, you know, once your baby girl gets here, are you still going to post weekly? And my goal is yes, (laughs) because it is such an outlet of support for me. Um, It's a win-win. I love to give advice and share inspiring stories of other people and then also hear from other people in the community. So it's something that is really a passion project for me. And I just hope to continue to do so um, through the years to come. Um, I've been doing some video work um, because my news background, that works out really well for me because I'm comfortable being on camera. It's just a matter of having the quiet time when my son naps. Um, I love doing podcast interviews. So basically, whenever um, an advocacy opportunity or an ambassador influencer job happens on social media, um, I love participating and being a voice for others. And it's just amazing because when you suffer in silence and you choose not to share your story, you feel so alone. But the minute that you start connecting with other people in the community like you and Brooke and all the different people in the IBD community, you oftentimes think, why didn't I do this sooner? Because there's people all over the world who live your reality, who understand it. And it's not a competition. There's room at the table for everybody. And there's so many different viewpoints and experiences. And we can all just build each other up. And that's something that's really helped me through my journey these past few years since I started sharing my story. Your website is amazing. And the Monday posts, of course, I see them. And they're amazing. And I always think to myself, I'm more of a catch as catch can kind of a blogger. So, uh, <laughs> but you, yeah, you really do, you know, uh, check it out every Monday. It's pretty awesome. And um, I almost feel, do you feel like the gauntlet was thrown down when somebody was like, oh, are you going to still be able to do it when you're a mother of two? I, I thought, I never even thought about that as an option. Actually, the post that I shared, <laughs> want the week 
not even a week after Reed was born. He was five days old. That is my most read article that I've ever written. Um, so I'm definitely writing one the week she's born. Maybe it'll beat that one out. Who knows? Um, I think I think the key to with blogging is having a plan. I have an editorial calendar that's just in my Gmail account, but it sets up, you know, for the next three months. So I know, you know, where are the gaps? When do I need to start thinking like a journalist again and think, you know, what's newsworthy right now? I keep an eye on social media for story topics. Uh, I look at people's stories and I think, you know, that's someone I want to profile. I'm featuring a college friend of mine who was diagnosed with Crohn's disease um, after college, just like me. And she's a single mom of three. She was diagnosed and had to move to Europe and had flare-ups in a hospital where nobody spoke English. Um, so it's a very interesting story. So there's stories like that that just really pique my interest. And when I see somebody take on their disease with bravery and courage and a positive sense, um, that's somebody that I want to profile. And I love inviting people to say, hey, look, I want to I be on your blog. Uh, because I think it's important to switch up the voice, not necessarily have somebody write, but I like to be the voice for them once they tell me their story. What do you think now about being the news lady with Crohn's disease? I love it. You know, I wish I would have done it sooner. I, I have a community page on Facebook that has many of my followers from my last station, and they're all so unbelievably amazing. And I've never even met you know, probably one third of them. Um, so it's incredible to see, you know, that last TV station, they all know what was going on behind the scenes now. And if anything, they've just opened up their arms and welcomed me even more. So I think it's amazing to be able to connect with people and, and be there for people who are newly diagnosed. I think that's the big key is I want to be the voice for the people who are sitting in that hospital room, just told they have IBD and they have nowhere to turn. They feel like, their life is over. And then they stumble upon my blog and think, you know what, I can still achieve everything I want to achieve. Well, you know, I mean, it also might have to do a little bit with your own self and your own sunny disposition. Don't you think <laughs> that people sometimes, rally you know, around you? We got a little feisty on Twitter before I have the Greek fire. So sometimes, <laughs> you know, I don't hold back, but it takes a lot for that side to come out of me. That's true. I, I'm, I, you know, you're bringing me back to that. It wasn't that long ago, but um, I remember having a moment where I was so proud of you. <laughs> I know. It's very unlike me. Yeah. I mean, I'm always proud of you, but I was like, wow, this, uh, look at her go. Like, that was awesome. When people claim that there's a cure for IBD, that really grinds my grids, I guess you could say, it's, especially when they have an D after their name. That's a little, little unbelievable to see sometimes, but you see it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I got into a little bit of it with somebody not too long ago with uh, <laughs> maybe some It'll always be there. letters behind their name. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, it seems like that's something that we're constantly fighting. And mm -hmm. I don't think we're always on opposite sides of that. I think sometimes it's a matter of semantics. But I know you yeah. would agree with me as a journalist that words matter. The word you mm -hmm. use oh, yes. matters. Yes. And I, and I choose to surround myself with people that have the same type of viewpoints. Because, um, for instance, on Instagram, if somebody wants me to follow them. And they say, you know, I heal with food. I don't believe in medicine. You know, it's cured me. I immediately say, I really, no offense to you. I'm glad that it's working for you. But personally, as I'm putting a biologic drug into my body while I'm pregnant, I really don't want to see that. And food hasn't been a healing source for me. So I don't choose to surround myself with those types of people. But everybody takes on their disease and every disease is different in each person. So to each their own. But I think that just saying that can give people uh, this this hope that might not be possible. Uh, it, like you said, I'm happy. I get email all the time from people who say, I did X, Y, Z, whatever, and it's working. I feel great. And I'm, my answer is, sometimes they want to know, is there science behind what I'm doing or, or something like that? And I'll say, mm -hmm. well, does it, in that case, does it matter? You feel awesome. Your doctor knows mm -hmm. what you're doing. Like, just keep Go doing you. it. Just keep doing yeah. it. But you cannot go and tell someone else that it is going to work for them 
or mm-hmm. that it should be working for them. And I did an episode with Erica Vegan Ostomy where we talked mm-hmm. a lot about that in depth because he went through that on a really serious, deep level. And there are real harms um, mm-hmm. in the idea that somebody telling you that they can cure you through eating, you know, like a lot of exactly. bananas or something. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then you, you see things that say, you know, these are the top trigger foods which I looked at the list and I said, hey, I could eat like three-fourths of those with no problem. You can't say, you know, this is a trigger food for everybody. Everybody has a different trigger food. So yeah. things like that, it's, it's a sensitive subject. And I try to be very thoughtful when I write anything about that because it is so completely individualistic. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like there's almost nothing you can write that would, you know, encompass mm-hmm. everyone. It's just it, you know, you just can't. And and when you I really look at can't. the list of trigger foods, sometimes I'm like, I ate most of those that day. You know? Yes. So just, oh. <laughs> those are all the fun foods. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to eat a cheeseburger. It makes me feel fantastic. I, I do feel better after a cheeseburger. I know. Don't we all? Well, most yeah, of us. We can't so say true. all of us. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, so let me know also too about your other, your Lights Camera Crowns. Tell me about where else everyone can find you on social media. Sure. On Instagram, you can find me. And it's a little bit confusing because I use my maiden name for some sites and my married name for other ones just because of my TV background, because I was Natalie Sprasio in a prior life. So that's my TV name. Um, So I apologize if it's confusing to people. But uh, my Instagram is at Natalie Ann, A-N-N, Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N. My Twitter is at Natalie Sprasio. But if you look up Natalie Hayden, it'll come up. It's just my Twitter handle different. Um, and then on my Facebook, the community page is Natalie A. Sparacio, and that's S is in Sam, P is in Peter, A-R-A, C is in Cat, I-O. Uh, so I keep that name because that's what the people know me as. Um, and I just think it's easier if I were to change it, they probably would think, who the heck is Natalie Hayden? Um, so I just kind of keep them according to who my followers are. Uh, but on my blog and in real life now, I go by Natalie Hayden. And of course, I'll put all of the information in the show notes. And then when this sure. episode goes up, I will be tagging you, my dear. Awesome. So it's too sure bad that sure. we couldn't do it in person, you know, I so that know. I could uh, I could get a nice... I bet you smell really good now that you're pregnant. <laughs> I bet you love my hair today, too. <laughs> it's not curled, though. Sorry, it's not my trademark. Oh, look. no that's so funny but it's a little bit of an inside joke that when I was going to meet Natalie for the first time after having known each other online and then we were going to (laughs) work together that I tweeted out that I couldn't wait to smell her hair and I think (laughs) I'm a little goofy and I thought you know I figure everybody knows that I'm goofy like that and Mm -hmm. so yeah Natalie's mom was a little concerned I was I was like, oh my gosh, Amber wants to smell my hair. Fangirl moment. <laughs> uh, I'm just a little goofy like that. So no, it was great. I'm so glad we got to meet in person though. I thought I, I oh, think yeah. it's starting to meet with fellow people who understand your reality in person. The best medicine. You know, and it was so funny because I think the first time I went to uh, a meeting where I was going to meet with a lot of people with IBD that I'd known online, but not yet in person, I -hmm. did feel a little bit nervous, but for real, the minute you're all together, it's like, how long have we known each other? Yeah, you're like, you feel like you've known each other for decades. Oh my gosh, I know you better than my friends that I've been friends with for 20 years. It's like this immediate connection. It's crazy. It's more like a family feel. That's that's totally for sure. And we don't. I was talking with. I think I was talking with Sarah Ringer about how we sometimes we get together. We we actually don't talk about IBD all that much. Sometimes we're like we're done with IBD. Let's talk about other stuff. And Mm -hmm. uh, and we do. And it's so amazing too because it's just no matter who, no matter what your disease journey is, there's one of us who has had a similar experience. And so Mm -hmm. I love that I'm able to sort of say, oh, well, you know, I know Natalie. And so, you know, she's had that problem like you had, or, you know, I know Brooke, or I know Eric, or I know Christy. And like, we can sort of send people to the the person that most is closest to their own disease journey and their disease state. Yeah, it's almost real. Like you meet these people and you feel like they're like a famous person because, you know, I remember I followed Sarah and Dan Sharp 
um, for years. And then I bumped into them at a Crohn's and Colitis Foundation event uh, with Dr. Rubin last October. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's them. And I went up and told them, you know, I follow you guys on social media. And she sat down next to me and we had a nice conversation. Well, then later that night, she tweets me and she says, oh my goodness, I didn't realize you were that, Natalie. I've been following you for years. So it's just funny how that works. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, we all kind of know each other, even if we don't really know each other. So yeah, we all creep on each other. And then we meet in reality. And we're like, oh my gosh, you're even better than your online persona. Oh, for sure. I like to say to people that I lovingly follow them. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way. That's much better than creepy. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is. It's out of love. Thank you for sitting with me during uh, Reed's nap time. We probably ate up almost his whole nap time. No, it's been an honor to be featured on your on your podcast. I love listening to it. Oh, thank you so much. It's It's been, gosh, I mean, you know, you do the same thing for a long time, and then you just, mm-hmm. gosh, you just want to do something different. And yeah. podcasting has really offered me an opportunity to connect with people in a different way. And I'm really so grateful that I can do it. And so grateful to you for sitting down and talking with me. Absolutely. I feel like hearing somebody's voice is so much different than reading it in a, in a quote in an article because you really get the emotion and the passion and the enthusiasm and, you know, what it, what it really is to live with IBD. So I appreciate people like you going above and beyond and doing the podcast because I know it's not easy to, to do the interview and then have to edit them and get them out there. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You probably more than most people understand how much work goes into it. But at the same time, I've learned so much and I have really supportive people around me who help me technically and emotionally. (laughs) So um, yeah, it's huge. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. And I'm so glad that, uh, that I get to continue to do it. So well, thank you so much for allowing me to be a guest. I, gosh, I hope we get together. Oh, you're going to have a baby. You're probably not going to be going to too many events. I oh. know. Thinking about that, I'm going to miss all the big advocacy events next year, unless I can make a little surprise drop in, you know, in Chicago or something. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, um, Stephanie brought her youngest along. I think it was to Orlando. And let me tell you, that baby did not want for anything because she just got passed around to all her IBD aunties. She probably got so so much love. She did. She got spoiled. And all of us got to hold the baby at some point. And we were like, oh, Stephanie, are you hungry? Do you want to eat something? Can I have the baby? You know? And uh, yeah, so I I think it went I think it went well. I should circle back with her and really talk with her more carefully about um, how that was to bring a little baby along on a trip like that, and mm-hmm. if if my perception of how that went for her was the same as hers. Yeah, her. What it was like for her it would be interesting to hear. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you. Special thanks to Natalie for taking time out of her day while her son had a nice long nap so she could talk with me. Natalie has such an amazing story and her blog is such a realistic view of what's going on, but it's also very upbeat, which is why I like it so much. On the one hand, we don't really want to sugarcoat things. We want to be providing to the public information that's correct that is realistic, that is reflective of the things that we do face as people that live with IBD. But we also want to find that hope. We want to find that place where we can exist, that we know that we can move forward and have a family and have a career that we love. Don't forget to find Natalie on Lights, Camera, Crowns, and I'm also putting in the show notes all of her other social media information. She really doesn't miss a Monday post. It's pretty amazing. Every Monday, kablam, right there on my Facebook, she's got her new blog post. Matter of fact, I think I need to go back to my desk and read her Monday post. Thanks for hanging out with me, super listener. And remember, I want you to know more about IBD. IBD.